following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Over the last couple of weeks, at this passion and compassion uh, of Jesus Christ, looking and saying of Jesus when he sat on a hill outside of Jerusalem and he wept. He saw the heart of one who loved a city and he knew deep down in his heart that the city was going to reject him, that they didn't want what he had to offer. And it broke his heart and he wept. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have so desired to gather you in, how I have desired to love you and to cover you with my pinions and to, to care for you as a mother hen cares for her chicks, but you would have none of it. You wanted to go on your own way, and you've rejected me, but I haven't rejected you, that, that I'm going to stay in relationship with you. And so you see this compassion of Christ. And then we, we talked last week of Christ when he came into the temple And he saw what was going on in the place that was supposed to be the house of prayer, a place of intimacy, a place of of reflection, a place where people would deeply consider how the sacrificial system of Judaism was pointing them to the completed work of Christ that was going to come on the cross, that he was the Paschal Lamb, uh, that he was the one who, uh, you know, on Tuesday of this week, some of you may be dreading the fact that it's April 15th uh, and it's tax day, but it's also another incredibly important day. It's Passover. Uh, It is a day uh, that pointed to the coming of Christ. And Jesus walked in to the temple and he said, you've missed the point. You've gotten so busy in all the accoutrements of religion. You've gotten so busy in all the forms of worship that you've forgotten me. And he turned over their tables. And so the question in our lives becomes, in that passionate side of Christ, are you willing to accept him when he comes in and he turns over your tables? That he comes in and he disrupts your normal flow of life. And he basically says, I'm trying to get your attention. I want you to not just go through the form of Christianity. I don't want you all to be just good southern Christians. I don't want you to just be good southern church folk. I want you to be my followers. I want you to be passionate about me. I want you to want me, not just what I give you. And that is a very hard but an incredibly important distinction. Now this week, we're turning back around a little bit and we're adding the compassion back on the COM on it of looking at Christ now coming in with compassion again. That he didn't come in, just imagine now who Christ is. It says that he was the King of kings, he's the Lord of lords, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he's equal with the Father in power and glory, that it says that he is the Lord uh, of the hosts of heaven. Do you know what that means? That's a military language. He is the Lord uh, of all of the armies of heaven. Uh, that he is the general who is out front on the white stallion. He is the general uh, who is out there brandishing his sword. Uh, and if you've watched great movies where, like Braveheart, and you just get fired up when Mel Gibson is going and, and getting the troops, Christ is saying, I can rally so many more people than that. Uh, I, I can rally every part of the armies of heaven, and they are at my beck and call. So he could have entered into Jerusalem in a very different manner. It would have made the military displays of North Korea and of Moscow and even the military displays of our own country pale in comparison to the might of the King of Kings entering into the city. 
And sometimes I wonder why he didn't do it. Because he realized, I've got to present to Jerusalem and to all of the world throughout all of the rest of time the true kingliness of who I am. That I'm a different kind of king. That I'm a king who at some level is willing to lay aside all of that. I'm willing to lay aside, as he said in Philippians, all of the beauties, all of the glories, all the passions of heaven. I'm, lay, I'm laying them aside. And I'm going to enter in in a meek and humble way. I'm going to ride on a donkey. I'm going to ride on a foal uh, of a donkey. I'm going to come in, and there's going to be common peasant people. It's not the aristocracy of the town that was greeting him. It wasn't the best of the best. It was the simple people. It was the peasants. It was the women and the children, those who had no place in society. They were his heralds that day, the outcasts. Just imagine what was happening. Just imagine all of the lepers who Jesus had healed and all the ones who had heard that their friends had been healed. They were the ones gathering around. All of the prostitutes and the cast outs, uh, all of the ones who were blind, all of the ones uh, who were the dirges of society, they were the ones who would have been coming around and saying, here comes the king. And now the good folk of the day, those who were more maybe educated, Maybe had a deeper understanding of kingdoms and kings. Would have gone, this is the king. This unattractive, not great man on a donkey entering to the hails and to the praises of these people. That's our king. Not a chance. Jesus was coming in and saying, I'm a different kind of king. And so that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. And if you have uh, your Bibles uh, with you, uh, you can flip over. What's the first passage that we have up there? Is it the Matthew passage? Okay, the Luke passage, excuse me. So it says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is God's word. And he had his blessing to the reading and the hearing of it. John wrote of the same entrance into Jerusalem. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John 12. And they said it this way. And the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and had raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had, what he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see, they are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Hosanna. Hosanna. Praise to the king. Praise to the one, the blessed one of Israel. And so the people were coming out and were, were singing this song, as you were. They were declaring this statement. And what we're going to look at today uh, is simply two facets of the word Hosanna. We're going to look at the word Hosanna and see how over time the word Hosanna began to change. And by the time of Jesus' day, it meant something different than you would have found in the psalmist's writings. And then taking that word, which used to mean, come save us, help, please, we are in need of salvation, Hosanna. It then came to mean, Hosanna, we are saved. We've been saved in the name of the King. And so the questions that we're going to ask today uh, are very simple questions to you. Do you in your life have as a part of your worldview, as a part of your theology, as a part of your common disciplines, to come to the Lord regularly and cry out, Hosanna, save, please. Father, save me. Christ, save me. But do you also have Hosanna, salvation is completed. I am saved in that. And so it's that dual look that we have in that this morning. And that's what Jesus brings He offers salvation to those who are in need of it. And he confirms salvation to those who have already received it. And so he's saying, I come as a very different kind of king. I come as a king who will establish salvation. I will save you from all of yours and all of my enemies. And I will then establish you in such a way that you will never have to be saved again. But think about it. This was a people who lived in a time and a day and age of changing empires. That they would be conquered and they would be overtaken and they would be moved and they would be displaced and dispersed and they would be brought back and then they would be dispersed again and they were brought into slavery and their idea of autonomy was totally lost. And they knew that Rome wouldn't last forever and they knew eventually somebody else would come and overtake them and they knew that before Rome, Assyria, and before Assyria, uh, whomever and then whomever before that, And now this king comes into their presence and says, when I reign in your life, no one will ever displace me from the throne. That was unheard of in that day. So how did they get to that point? Well, the thing that I want you to see uh, is is you look at the word Hosanna. It it comes from this uh, this word uh, in, in the Hebrew, which isn't important, Hoshiana, which meant Lord, save us. If you go to Psalm 118 in verse 25, it comes and it reads, it says, save, please. It's a cry to God for help. Uh, Like when somebody pushes you uh, off a diving board before you can swim. I was uh, a lifeguard at a public pool in Charlotte for a a summer uh, a lot of years ago. 
And it was amazing. Uh, these kids would come in, and they would climb up on the high dive, and they would do three gainers and two flips and a couple of twists, and they would hit the water, and they wouldn't know how to swim. And I would be sitting in the deep end, and I'd be fascinated by the dive, and then I'd look in the water, and you know what they were crying? They didn't use the word, but they were saying, Hosanna, save, please. Hey, lifeguard, save, please. And they'd head down, and you'd dive in, and you'd grab them, and you'd bring them out, and you'd say, how can you dive so well and not swim? They said, well, we knew you were here to take care of us. And so their understanding of Hosanna was, save, please. And that was what the psalmist in 118 was saying, was, Lord, we are in desperate straits. Save us, please. But then over the course of time, something began to happen, as it does in any language, that certain phrases change over the course of time. Those of you who may be a little bit older know that in our own language. You'll say something, and your children or grandchildren will look at you and say, that doesn't mean what you think it means anymore. And you're like, well, what does it mean? Well, I can't tell you what it means, but I can tell you this. Please, for God's sake, don't ever say that in front of any of my friends again. It's very embarrassing. And so that was happening here a little bit of the word Hosanna, uh, Hosea, na, was changing over the course of time. And you see the meaning brought out fully here in these verses that we read. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The cry for help was now answered almost before it came out of his mouth. And so it was now instead of save please, it gradually became salvation, salvation, salvation has come. And so it had moved in the vernacular. And so what I want us to do today is to start to get an idea of that. John Piper was teaching on this a number of years ago, and he used a great illustration. And I'll put it into uh, terms that that I understand. Uh, That would be in uh, the Carolina Panthers are my favorite NFL football team. And there's a a cornerback whose name is Captain Munerlin, and he played at the University of South Carolina. And it would be as if there was a pass play by the Falcons, and it went to their receiver. And the receiver is running down the field, and Captain Munerlin is running after him to save the touchdown that's going to allow the Panthers to go to the Super Bowl and eventually win the Super Bowl. And half of Bank of America Stadium there in the Panthers are yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, Munerlin, save us, please. Munerlin, catch that guy and tackle him. Save him. Save us. And the other half of the stadium is simultaneously screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, Munerlin's got him. Salvation is fixed. We don't have to worry about this. So there's simultaneous language being used for the same word used that mean different things but all converge to accomplish the same goal and the same task. That's what's happening here with the word Hosanna. That the people were crying out, Christ save us. Christ has saved us. And for us today, we're going to ask, do we still need to do that? So let's first look at the question or the part of the phrase, Jesus, save us please. Save us please. I guess you have to beg the question, save us from what? What do you need salvation from? Well, I'm going to speak to two different audiences here today. The one audience may be some of you who are here, and I don't know who you are, but maybe you haven't placed your faith in Christ. That you were come to church, 
every now and then. Maybe you got burned up in church years ago and you don't want to have anything to do with the religion of your parents or the religion of your hometown or whatever your home church was. And you've been living your life and you're going about and now maybe you're tipping your toe back in and you're investigating. And you hear me say to you, Christ, save me. Well, what do you need salvation from? The scriptures say that all those who are before Christ, all those who have not accepted Christ are in bondage, are in absolute servanthood, are in a kingdom of darkness. It says that our lives are bound by that darkness. They're bound by sin and they're bound by death and that there's no way for us on our own to ever free ourselves from the bondage of sin and death. And that you may say, but Bill, I'm a good person. And the challenge then becomes even your good works are not strong enough and are not adequate enough to free you from the tyranny of sin and the bondage of death that's in your life. And so you'd be looking and asking, what do I need to be freed from? And what you need to be freed from is the bondage of death. And what Christ comes in and offers you is life. He offers you victory over the grave. Uh, What we celebrate in seven days is the fact that he won the victory. And so he's offering to you life and freedom uh, and hope and the loss of all of the guilt and the shame and all of the stuff from the past. It no longer weighs you down or bogs you down, but you're free to live your life. And you're free to then live and to gain the glories and the beauties of the kingdom of heaven. But then there's another group here that have already given your lives to Christ. You've already committed your life to Christ. You've expressed faith in Christ as your king. And you could say, well, what do I need freedom from? What do I need to be saved from? Well, I could probably put an open mic up here and say, well, I'll let you fill in that blank. What do you need salvation from? Well, here's the deal. When you come to Christ, it says that you are freed from the tyranny of sin. It no longer has full dominion over your life. You are not bound to it in the same way you were before. That you now have the freedom to exercise your will in such a way that you can determine not to do something, not to sin, not to uh, go out and to pursue the lust of the flesh, not to go out and live as the world lives. You can determine to, to pursue Christ. But there still are vestiges of the old. It says that I've died with Christ and it's now Christ who lives in me and the old has passed away, but there's still vestiges of that. That's what Paul was talking about in Galatians uh, when he spoke of the power of the flesh and the power of the new life in Christ and the spirit, and those are in, in, in conflict with one another. And so there are times in your life, um, anybody ever lost your temper more than once in your life after you became a Christian? Okay, yeah, me too. Um, and maybe anybody ever lied after you became a Christian? Really? <laughs> that, that's it. Wow. Honest Abe's in this congregation. I never lie except right now uh, uh, when I'm doing that. And uh, so obviously you proved my point. And so uh, we, we just have these tendencies. And so for the believer, our cry of Hosanna is, Lord, Save me, deliver me from the power of sin that still is there that I don't want to go running down that way. That's what Paul was crying out in Romans 7. Oh, the things I want to do, I don't seem to do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself so easily falling into them. Oh, wretched man that I am, who is going to save me from this body of flesh? Who's going to save me from this? Paul was wrestling with this Hosanna. He was saying, I know that my salvation is firm in Christ, and I know that on the cross I have died, and it's Christ who lives through me, and I have the hope of salvation, I have the hope of, uh, of heaven, I have his spirit implanted in me, and it lives in me, but there's this other part of me. 
Jesus, I need you to save me from that. I need you to help me not continue to be so selfish that I want my way when I want it, how I want it, and at whatever cost, I'm going to get it. Jesus, I need to help you help me die to the bondage of self. You know your greatest enemy is you. Your greatest enemy is that selfish heart that's still there in your life. I talk to new couples all the time. And I said, the greatest enemy that's going to affect your marriage is your selfishness. I remember when Lisa and I got married, the pastor asked us, so do you guys have any expectations on one another? And we just went, now we had been dating, what, all of six weeks? Five weeks before we got engaged and six weeks before we decided to get premarital counseling. And... Uh, <laughs> And it was a book that somebody had written that said, you, if you haven't dated for at least a year, you don't even need this book. And so I was like, okay, I don't need that book. And uh, so we had it, and we looked at our pastor, and we said, we have no expectations on one another. None. We're just going to love each other. It's going to be awesome. And then God's going to bless us with kids, and we're going to be awesome parents. And it's just going to be fantastic, and everything's going to be great. And what we learned so quickly in the middle of all of that was, oh, my gosh, I'm the most selfish individual that I've ever seen. Who is this person? And what we've learned and what so many of you have learned as you walk with Christ over the years is that when you cry Hosanna to this king, you're saying, Lord, continue to displace other kings who try to take the throne in my life, most assuredly myself. That's the cry of the believer saying, Hosanna. That we are saved from the tyranny and the oppression of the fall. That we are freed and saved from fear. I talk to so many of you, and I've talked to people throughout the course of my ministry over these years, and there's such a fear Afraid of the future, afraid of what may happen, a fear of what might not happen. There's a fear of the grave. There's a fear of what's going to happen to my family after I die. What's going to happen to my children when I send them off to school? What's going to happen? And we are just bound in this fear. Well, part of the beauty of the coming of this king into our lives is he says this, I free you from the tyranny of fear. Because if I am who I say that I am, and I am seated on the throne, and I am a good king and a powerful king, and I always do what is best for my own glory and for your good, therefore you can trust me. And you cannot be afraid. For my perfect love casts out your fear. And for all of us, believer or unbeliever, seeker or one who's been walking with Christ for all, a long part of our lives, we know and we need to be saved from our fears. We walk around terrified and in that fear is bondage because in that fear we're afraid to ever step out in faith. We're afraid to truly love. We're afraid to be vulnerable before anybody. And Christ is saying, I'm your king. You can trust me. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, he says, I free you from the tyranny of death itself. Every human being is afraid of death. Every philosophy, every worldview, uh, every religion that has ever been created has been created to try to explain away death. To try to understand death and what happens at death and all of that. And only Christianity has an answer that says this. Our king, this different kind of king, died death so that you never will. 
that our king went into the grave. He didn't stand on the outside of the grave and speak to the grave. He entered into the grave. He entered into the crypt. He entered into uh, to hell itself. He entered into the powers of death. And after three days, he said, hey, fellas, you don't get to keep me. And he walked out of the grave. And Satan and all the minions and all of that went, we thought that was our trump card. Maybe he could do some other things, but not beat death. That was our winning hand at the end of the day was death. And Jesus said, I just destroyed death for anybody who believes in me. And you know what that does for you in this life? You may say, well, that's my fire insurance and I get heaven. No, what it does is it frees you from the fear of and the power of death. It allows you to actually live your lives fully. Wouldn't that be great? Would your life look differently today if you lived it without a fear of dying? Now, I'm not telling you to go nuts and go swim with great white sharks. I'm not telling you to go jump out of airplanes without parachutes. I'm not telling you to be silly and crazy and stupid. But I am telling you this. What would happen if you lived your life without the fear of dying? Would you live it differently? Would you live it more passionately? Would you live it maybe more generously in how you lived with everything that you have? To say, death, it doesn't scare me anymore. It doesn't scare me anymore. Maybe it would lead you to do some crazy things like Jeff and Becky Peters are doing. I mean, Becky's already down in Haiti this week. And Jeff, is she's coming back in a few days. And then Jeff and Becky are heading down to Haiti because they realize something. If Jesus is the king on the island of Hilton Head, he's king on the island of Haiti. And we're as safe in his presence on Haiti as we are in all of the beauty of Hilton Head. And therefore, we can go without fear. We can go without any of this other stuff. We can go, and we can live boldly, and we can do things because Christ is our salvation and has cast away the tyranny of fear of death and of sin and oppression and all of those things. That doesn't mean all of you are going to, some of you may go, well, I don't really, I kind of like a little fear because I'm not ready to go to Hilton, to Haiti. It doesn't mean that each of you are going to go off and be missionaries and all that stuff, but it does mean this, it's going to change the way you live your life. Because of what God in Christ has accomplished. You see, no other king can save you. No other king can save you. For some of you, you've been working really hard in your own lives to save yourself. You've tried to be your own king. And I would ask you this, to be honest today. How are you doing in that role? Some of you have set yourself up in your families as the king, and it is through you that you're going to save your spouse. It is through you that you're going to save your children. I'd have to ask you, how are you doing in that role? Are you actually leading them to life and freedom, or are you actually leading them into tyranny and bondage under the expectations of a parent or of a spouse who thinks they have to control everything? Jesus is saying, I'm the only king who can offer you life. I'm the only king who can do it. I'm the only king who can answer your prayer of save me, please, that he will come and he actually will save you. Which leads to the second side of Hosanna, and we'll spend just a couple of minutes on it. And that's this. Hosanna, save, please. Or Hosanna, salvation has come in the name of the Lord. There's a confidence that comes to us as Christians 
when we see that salvation, salvation has come. I want you to hear this. Jesus has established salvation. What happened at the cross, what we celebrate at Easter, is the fact that that victory was won once and for all. That he is not being challenged anymore in that way. It says in Revelation, they will make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb has overcome them. That he has established his victory and that he is not going to be shaken. His kingdom is immovable. He is on his throne this morning. Do you realize that and recognize that today? How many of you have anything going on in your life that maybe these words could speak to? Hey, I don't know what it is. It could be absolutely horrific and mountainous, or it could be somewhat smaller. It's somewhere in the spectrum in between. But if I say these words, Jesus is on his throne, does that speak to you? I don't know what it is. I'm a parent of three boys. Last time I checked, there's not a really good manual for raising three boys. I don't know how to do it well. I'm married for 22, almost 23 years now. And we're trying to figure it out. And some days are better than other days. And I'm trying to lead this church and and figure these things out. And trying to be in relationship with other people. And trying to do that. And you know what I constantly have to come back to when I get a text from my CPA on Tuesday night saying, Hey, Uncle Sam wanted to remind you of something. And uh, I was like, Great. That's awesome. I just can't wait to give away some more money to him uh, this month. And and I look around, and and I've got my mom who just has come through breast cancer treatment, and she got to ring the bell on Friday, which was awesome, but you worry and you do. And I keep these simple words in my common, everyday language, and I speak them to myself. Bill, the last time I checked, Jesus was still on his throne. You're going to be okay. You may not have the answers. You may not be able to see into the future for your boys' lives. You may not be able to see in the future for your mother. You may not be able to see in the future for all the different things that are swirling around in your worlds. But one thing you can see into the future so incredibly vivid and so clear for you is a a king on a throne who says, I've got your future I have won the victory. You are safe in me. There is nothing that you can do to separate yourself from me. Some of you come from theological backgrounds which say this, you can lose your salvation. There is something that you can do that is going to cost you your salvation. And you have lived the majority of your life since you heard those damning words. And you have lived your life in absolute fear of wondering, is this the one? Is this the one where God goes, oh, McCutcheon, yeah, you're over You've used it up, and you've lived in fear of that, and you have lived under the tyranny of that. And Jesus is saying, I have won your salvation. I have won victory over the grave. I have won it at the cross, and I have given you my very life, that you are now the very righteousness of my Father. And you are secure in him, and your names are written upon my very hands. And I will never, ever lose you. And he said to his Father, Father, I promise you in John 17, I won't lose one of them whom you have given to me. Not one of them. You know who he's speaking of in that statement? You. Salvation has come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what I want you to hear today, folks, is this. He has earned your salvation for you. You don't have to carry around guilt and shame and condemnation anymore. I don't know, there may be somebody here, maybe a lady here, who in your past, you had an abortion, and you just cannot forgive yourself for that. Or maybe there's somebody who has has 
caused great damage in their families through addiction. And you won't forgive yourself for that. Or maybe you messed up in your parenting with your kids. And so you carry the guilt around of how you messed up. And you hold it. What Jesus is trying to say to you today is this. I paid for that. You don't have to pay for it anymore. Salvation has come in the name of the Lord. I'm going to ask you. Are you willing today to be ruled? Are you willing today to allow Christ to rule in your life? And maybe for some of you, you're going, that's the best news I've ever heard. And you're taking a deep breath and exhaling and going, finally, I can give up dominion over my own life because I'm so tired. And I look back and I have worn out myself and everybody around me. And Jesus, come in today and rule for me. And for others of you, you hear that and you're coming as the believer who's coming in and saying, God, I'm sorry that I have tried to do it on my own too often and I relinquish again the rights to my own life and I give them to you. And my prayer for you today is this, that in his ruling of you, you would cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God, thank you. Thank you that you didn't leave Jerusalem. You knew that they were going to reject you. You knew what was going to happen. But yet you went in because you realized that it was only through that that life was going to come. And Father, we thank you that you finished finished the gospel. Thank you, Christ, that you in the garden, though wrestling with what was about to happen... You said the words, not my will, but yours be done. And you went to Calvary for the joy set before you, and that joy is us, your children. Father, thank you for the salvation that we have received in Christ. And I pray for those this morning who have not yet received that salvation, that they would open their gates and they would allow the King of glory to come walking in in all of his majesty and presence and goodness, and life, and salvation in the presence of the King. Would would we be ruled today? To Christ be the glory. Amen.